You're listening to the Deep Purple Podcast, a fan podcast about one of the most legendary bands of all time, Deep Purple. We take a look at the music, history, and people behind the band Deep Purple and beyond. Welcome to the Deep Purple Podcast, the first and only podcast devoted to one of the greatest rock bands in history, Deep Purple. Today's episode is episode number 16, Before They Were Purple, part three, Hughes and Coverdale. And coming to you from the suburbs of Chicago, I'm your host, Nathan Beaudry. And from the biggest little state in the nation, I'm your co-host, John Basher Matola. Ooh, Basher, that's a good one. <laughs> Forget about it. It's very fierce. Yeah. Coming from the biggest little state, too, and we got, um, we officially, this is a big moment for the podcast because we had our first offer for somebody to buy us a beer. To, to buy you a beer, because I guess yeah, they must, no. <laughs> they must be <laughs> close. Um, I, I guess they're going to the uh, show at Mohegan Sun. Yeah. So they're uh, there's they said, you know, I guess so. I, so I get an email that says, you know, tell John Matola I'll buy him a beer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if which he's is awesome. Mo- if he's at the Mohegan Sun show, so I um I will not be uh, most likely. If I am, I'll take you up on it. Who but is it that's if, playing again? Uh, I don't know. Did did he say? He did. Let me let me look it up real quick. So he says. Um, I mean, it wasn't was it it wasn't Deep Purple, was it? <laughs> well, he said uh, it's a longtime friend who was going to the Purple show at Mohegan Sun in October. Oh, maybe when Purple's playing at Mohegan Sun. Oh, okay. You know, okay. I didn't even look at that when I looked at potential um, shows for us to attend. I looked for the one in Boston yeah. and then the one yeah. that's out here by me, which is almost in Chicago, like right outside well, the city. It, well, I mean, the Mohegan one would be cool because it's a smaller venue. Mm-hmm. Um, well, ours but, is at, the, the one around here is at the Rosemont Theater, which I've never been to, uh, but it's right by uh, O'Hare. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know, but. Rosemont well, either way, if, uh, if we make it out to that one, then, uh, sir, we will take you up on that. And if anybody else is in the Providence area and wants to buy me a beer, email Nate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to like, <laughs> I'm going to be like running, uh, uh, organizing this and doing logistics for you to get a free beer. I'm like, here's his email. You talk, I'll, I'll give him your phone number here. Call him. Um, but I would love, uh, I love to uh, sit around and talk about music and, you know, uh, it'd be cool to go to shows and stuff like that. So yeah, I'll, I'll meet anybody anywhere within a certain radius. <laughs> and I've, you know, growing up in Rhode Island, well, Mohegan Sun was kind of built when we were older, but um, yeah. I've never been to Mohegan Sun. I've driven by it like a million times, but. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Better than Foxwoods. Yeah, yeah, because Foxwoods was like a few years before that, right? Mohegan Sun was like a little bit more. Uh, yeah. A little um, more modern. From, from what I hear is, is that like more people prefer that one. Uh, anybody not from the Northeast, uh, they were talking about two casinos, um, which are in, both in uh, Connecticut, um, which are relatively close. But they're right over the border. Because that that side of Connecticut, there's like that half of Connecticut, there's basically like no population. <laughs> so it's basically yeah. made to serve Rhode Island. It's right over the line so that they can have the gambling casinos and all that. Pretty um, much, which, I mean, we have we have... Twin River Casino, which is literally five minutes down the street from me, but that's not. And that's where you as, saw White Snake, right? And that's yeah, which is where I saw White Snake um, a little while ago. But it's not quite up to the level of the other uh, places. But it's still um, having it in such close proximity to my house gives me a break on taxes, so I'm not going to complain. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> 
All right. So, but anyway, on to business. Yeah, on to business. Uh, thanks to our patrons, we got a new patron, cool. uh, Peter Gardo, with coming joining us at the three dollar tier. Thank you, Peter, and he's the one who is you know offering to get you a drink, and we appreciate that. Nice. <laughs> and we yeah, also I appreciate all of it. Clay Wambacher and Steve Seaborg at uh, All the World's a Stage, All the World's a Stage dot net. Um, so thank you for those patrons coming in at three patrons. Look at that. Woo-hoo, we're getting there. Yeah, we're definitely. Uh, uh, definitely uh, coming on the scene now, and we're you know I, I don't I've I, I've stopped checking. I used to like obsessively refresh the page to see how many hits we get like every day. Like oh, two more people listened. You know, like okay, it's only been ten <laughs> minutes. Um, and now I like I only check it like a couple times a week. Every time I check it though, it's like whoa, four hundred more people or whatever. It's it's a uh, a lot more shocking now, and we've got more episodes cool. and everything as well. So. Um, well, and we like uh, we keep getting blocked on YouTube. You know, the funny thing is, the last episode did not get blocked because the the thing that the the two episodes that got blocked so far were was it two? No, three. The In Rock Special Edition bonus yeah. stuff. The regular one yeah. was fine. Mm-hmm. The Fireball Special Features or Special Edition Twenty Fifth Anniversary Edition, and then uh, Machine Head. No, wait, Machine Head didn't get blocked. So it's just been three. So. The last one is who do we think we are? I did all the special bonus tracks for that. Nothing, yeah. no problems. Hmm. So I, I don't know what it is about those albums. I don't know if it's just some weird thing with the algorithm. Who knows? Cause it's not like it's a human being going through listening to all this stuff. So I have no idea why some things are getting blocked and some things aren't, hmm. but YouTube is uh, pretty fickle from any, everyone that's like a, a YouTube. Now that I'm like, a quasi YouTuber and at an extremely low level, I could see what YouTubers are complaining about all the time. It's it's a little yeah. frustrating, but luckily, YouTube. I really only throw those things up on YouTube just because just to get it up there in case some people like to look at stuff through YouTube. Uh, but our main medium really is just the podcast feed. So, and the podcast feed sound quality is ten times better too. What you're hearing through. YouTube is just the raw audio as we're recording it, and it's not it's not mixed the same way. The levels, mm-hmm. and I've got all this you know, noise gates from when we talk. It brings the music levels down. You get none of that on YouTube, but some people still seem to enjoy it on YouTube, so we'll keep putting it up there as long as we can before they kick us off permanently. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like we've said before, people just upload full albums with no with nothing, and it's no problem, and then here we are trying to offer some commentary and perspective, and we get booted off, and we get we get the X. Exactly, the big the big ban hammer comes down on us. Yeah. All right. So today we are talking once again about the history of musicians before they joined the band. And today's musicians are obviously Glenn Hughes and David Coverdale, coming into Deep Purple as we begin the the, the warm up for the Mark III lineup of Deep Purple. Oh baby, I I got to admit. Couldn't wait for this. Oh, I'm so excited. Like uh, Mark three and Mark four have always for us been uh, our favorite stuff from the band, which if you've been listening, you've probably been hearing us blather on about for 15 episodes so far. For sure. Uh, But it's great stuff. And I, I always really like this, this era of the band because they, they start breaking up the formula a little bit and trying new things. And eventually that's, what's going to drive Richie out. (laughs) He seemed to have a very specific thing he wanted to do, and uh, most mm-hmm. of it was just about the control he had over the band. And he starts to lose a little bit, bit of that as new people come in. With you know, he, he we bring in Glenn Hughes and David Coverdale, who are not 
only great contributors to the band, but great musicians and songwriters in their own regard. So they, they tend to have some ideas as well. And John and Lord and Ian damn Pace funky. Are, <laughs> damn funky. Damn funky. Richie Blackmore's damn funky. Um, so uh, we start with Glenn Hughes. He, uh, he grew up as an only child, and, you know, I, I was reading his autobiography lately and uh, talks about just, you know, having a really good upbringing and childhood and uh, the reason bring that up is because you know spoilers uh, he, he has a really rough 20 year run with drugs uh, um, starting directly after he joins Deep Purple so um, you know he talks about just how happy he was growing up and everything he didn't come from a troubled home or anything like that uh, his first instrument was a trombone he played the trombone a little bit and he wasn't very interested in it uh, then his uh, parrots got him a cheap guitar and he said he was hooked ever since he, when he started the string instrument. So. Oh, thank God he wasn't interested in the trombone. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have gotten Glenn Hughes. It would have been great if he still joined Deep Purple, but on trombone. <laughs> It'd be a little oh, harder funky, to sing and play at the same time. The funky trombone. The funky trombone. <laughs> well, who knows? Maybe that's why his, uh, maybe it's such a uh, great lung capacity. There you go. Yeah, it could be. Uh, it's, it's, it was always interesting to me because I started playing the trumpet. That uh, was the first instrument I played when I was like in fourth or fifth grade or something. And again, oh. I was like, like I played it. I was in the marching band, and I just kind of lost a little interest. And then a few years later, I would get into playing the stringed instruments. But you know, I Flea is also a trumpet player and a bass player. And then you got Glenn Hughes, who's a trombone player and a bass player. So it must be something about those the brass instruments that pushes you away and drives you to uh, playing a stringed instrument. Although Flea still plays trumpet and he's actually really incredible. <laughs> I did not keep up with it. <laughs> um, so he talks about, you know, Glenn Hughes in his book about he saw the Beatles on TV and saw the girls screaming. He said he was only 12 years old, but he knew that that's what he wanted. <laughs> he wanted to be in a band and have the girls screaming. Um, he Don't said he was <laughs> Exactly. Covered a hill in, in particular. Uh, <laughs> He wasn't as into Elvis, he said. He was more into like doo-wop and soul music, which is not surprising if you know anything about Glenn Hughes. Um, and Glenn, Glenn's book is very interesting. You can tell it's probably like, if you're interested in reading it, just look it up on, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, but look it up on Amazon. It's just Glenn Hughes' autobiography. It, it, you can tell it's mostly just him probably sitting down and dictating to a, to, to a writer. And with Joel McIver, I think is the... Uh, the, the the guy who kind of put it together because mm -hmm. it's very conversational. It kind of bounces back and forth. It's just like him telling stories and you can tell the way it's written. It's just very conversational. Um, and then it's broken up with like interview snippets. So there'll be things by from Sheila Hughes, his mother, David Coverdale. Um, I think uh, like different roadies from the band and things like that. So there's all these like little snippets like Glenn Hughes will be talking about something and then there'll be a quote from David Coverdale saying, you know, what he thought about that or whatever. Um, he, uh, Glenn's mother talks in the book about how the girls were very interested in Glenn Hughes as a good looking guy. Um, so he kind of had a lot of girls showing up to the house to, to see Glenn. Um, and the first band he was in was called the Hooker Lees named after John Lee Hooker in 1965. And then they changed their name to the intruders. And then he had a new band called the news, uh, pre-Huey Lewis, I guess. Uh, probably not the same band. I didn't look it up, but I'm going to guess it's not the same band. Um, he played lead guitar and vocals in that band. Mm. And then after that, in 1968, he joined a band called Finders Keepers with uh, Mel Galley, 
Um, and Mel Galley uh, said he could join as long as he would play the bass. And Glenn Hughes said he would have played the tuba if they let him join the band. So he joins, he agrees to play the bass, and this kind of starts off on his his interest in the bass. Um, so Mel Galley was kind of like a brother to him, a mentor. He really helped him out a lot in these early days. And there's some good information I'll put in the show notes about this band because it was one of those bands that was around for a very short time and had about 16 people in and out of the band. Uh, but I do have a little clip here of them live uh, playing a song called Friday Kind of Monday. I'm sorry, this is not them live. This is a recording, a single called Friday Kind of Monday. And it's a very... Can you hear that? Nope, not yet. So this isn't Glenn Hughes singing, but I think he does do some background singing on this. Very 60s. Very much reminds me of a lot of the stuff we were listening to on one of our first episodes <laughs> where we talked about the early 60s influence and, you know, one of these another two-minute song single from yeah. one of these bands. Yeah, nothing really stands out about it. I'm always trying to listen for Glenn Hughes there, see if I can pick him out, but there's so many vocalists going on. <laughs> so it's like funny because it's like there was like an unlimited number of bands, it seems, around that time yeah. doing this kind of stuff that's all very like, without being condescending, kind of generic sounding 60s stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, it kind of is. I mean, it's like, uh, you didn't, <laughs> you're like, Trying to listen for Glenn Hughes in the background, but unless you like Friday, come you wouldn't be doing that in the background of this. They'd be like, "Hey, knock it off! <laughs> Sound generic." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's it's too different. But uh, but yeah, it's like um, I feel like, uh, and this was like, what did the I saw that the date on that was like what nineteen? Uh, yeah, I think it says sixty-seven on that picture, but yeah, I'm showing sixty-eight. He, he was. This is the only recording that I can sort of with confidence say Glenn Hughes was on that I could find yeah. um, and I'm but, not 100% on that somebody if you're listening and you think I'm a fool please write in and <laughs> let me know where I'm wrong but yeah you're right I mean it's um, I think a lot of the reasons that they didn't go anywhere with bands like that we had Glenn Hughes or any of the other guys was because like you said it was pretty cookie cutter type of stuff it wasn't very distinguishable and I mean think about two other bands that were really stood out at the time like like cream yeah uh is the only one that i can really think of right now uh, aside from the obvious like uh, the beatles and yeah other bands like that that really like stood out and then you had all that other stuff which was kind of like white noise around that time well, so everyone really... was trying to just latch onto this formula you know and make songs like that that was there wasn't and a lot of it was people doing covers too like that's not a song that they wrote yeah and it's really no different than what happens now, too. If there's a, or any time, really, uh, even, yeah, even today, I, I don't know much about 
<laughs> what's going on today, but I'm sure that whatever the formula is, I'm sure that there's a lot of copycat stuff mm-hmm. out there that this is kind of the same thing. It's like a lot of it nobody cares about because it's all fitting whatever the formula is that everybody's latching onto right now. Well, there's so much like, you know, I, th- I feel like everyone always says, oh, music today is not like what it used to be. Like and everyone's always saying that, which is a bunch of baloney. Um <laughs> <laughs> you know, like people say that now, like, oh, they just don't make good music anymore. And you even hear like people in there, you know, like people 15, 20 years younger than you being like, oh, it was the, go-, you know, back in the day, meaning like, I don't know, 2011. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's when music was really good. And now it's like, it's just, there's always like a punch, like you said, a bunch of white noise in the mix yeah. and then there's some standout stuff you know we're not we're not doing a podcast about all of the other bands that we've never heard of that that were just generic and fell by the wayside we're doing a podcast about a band that endured and did something different so exactly and um yeah so this band <laughs> broke it. up in 1969 mel galley glenn hughes and dave holland from the band went on to form trapeze um, mm. The original lineup of Trapeze included those three, and also John Jones on vocals and Terry Rowley did guitar and keyboards. And that was the lineup through their first album. And then the more traditional, at least in my view, Trapeze is the 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 trio, the trio. yeah, um, of Mel Galley, Dave Holland, and Glenn Hughes, which they they had a couple of monster albums. Yeah, and I just oh, love. I listened to the three first Trapeze albums, even the first one. I listened to them nonstop when I when I started getting into Deep Purple, and uh, you know I've listened to them little bits and pieces here and there as preparing for the show, yeah. and I'm like, wow, I can't wait to start talking about these albums because they're just so good. I remember the first Trapeze album was a little kind of hippy dippy, yeah, like because it was it was that... 1969, I think. Yeah, or maybe so it, it might really have been the... 70, but it was probably recorded in 69. But it wasn't that power pop type of thing or funky power pop type thing that they were doing in the next couple of albums. Mm-hmm. It sounded really kind of psychedelic ish and right. I haven't heard it for a while, but I remember yeah. that album was kind of the black sheep album in my opinion. And then the other ones were like the really good ones. Yeah. I think it still holds up pretty well, but yeah, it was the kind of that transition. They hadn't really found their sound. yet. It was, it's like the first three deep purple albums all rolled into one, but yeah, probably better. I'd probably rather, rather listen to the first trapeze album. Um, but yeah, they, they, so they were got together in 69. I've got the earliest footage I can find is this, uh, Glenn Hughes, I think was 17. Wow. Um, and might, maybe even 16. So when he's born, 51. Yeah. Oh, he was, he would have been, well, he could have been 16, maybe not turned 17 yet, depending on when in the year this was, but, uh, this is them live, uh, on TV. And this is a really wow. interesting video, uh, that shows you. Kind of what the what what they were all about in the very very early days. Glenn Hughes. Oh, there he is. Club Lafayette. That's funny because the town I grew up in had a club, you know Club Lafayette, right? <laughs> Oh, no. No. I just... <laughs> I just think it's funny that... Who's that guy? That, I believe, is um, uh, John Jones, who was, like, the vocalist. 
who actually sounds a bit like Glenn Hughes, I think. And this song's called Meat on the Ledge. I had to Google like a madman to f I couldn't figure out what they were saying exactly. There he goes. He's just like 16 years old and he's already got it. Like He's a little more lucid here though, you can see. Yeah. He doesn't he hasn't removed his shirt yet or anything. <laughs> Oh yeah, still just got that great voice already at 16 years old, potentially 17. Um, this was at the Club Lafayette in Wolverhampton, UK on Saturday, July 5th, 1969. So if I wasn't so lazy, I could look up his birthday and figure out <laughs> exactly how old he was. Um, yeah, the song's called Meet on the Ledge. Again, I had to Google it crazy to find it, just taking random snippets of lyrics. It's not a, it's apparently a British folk song. It's not very... Uh, super well represented on that I can find, but She's, Glenn Hughes was born August 1952. 52, yeah, so he would have been he would have been turning 17 in a couple in a month. So yeah, he was 16. Oh. Then <laughs> we're getting pissed at all these like young YouTubers that are like kicking ass, and we. Yeah, you get pissed at like young, retroactively pissed at young Glenn Hughes for being that good too. Just listen to his, how soulful his voice was. It's just so here they are playing a second a second track. This one is "Open My Eyes." The name of the song. Look at this guy. I thought you were gonna like this guy. <laughs> Oh, he's into it. <laughs> he's 60s. <laughs> so this is early trapeze. This is before they even did their first album. And it's like, these guys are pretty damn good. And this is like we were talking about. This isn't that standard formula. This is like some interesting stuff that they're doing. Yeah. That guy's not into it. <laughs> A few people in the audience are like, um, is this almost over? <laughs> I don't know who that guy is. <laughs> the camera work just like... leaves a little to be desired. I always love when you see like a con like the concert like this. It's like there's a singer on stage and you're like focusing on some guy with a handlebar mustache in the crowd. And even when they, they're filming Glenn Hughes, it's like from behind. It's like. Or it's blurry, or it's like, come on, get with it. There we go. Doing a little, little dance in there. <laughs> Guy thrown. What are those? Frisbees, plates. There might be records. records. <laughs> look at how, <laughs> look at how young Glenn Hughes is. Maybe if you if you if they had that camera angle, they should have used it a little more. But it looks like the stage is about six inches above the floor where the people are watching it. So yeah, <laughs> you're mostly seeing the backs of people's heads. Well, the uh, the Club Lafayette was probably like a 
Uh, looks like it's the equivalent of like a BFW over here or something. Yeah, yeah. It looks as it looks smaller than the Club Lafayette that uh, was in my hometown, <laughs> which is where I would go see my friends' bands when they were 16 years old. But they weren't quite at this level. <laughs> well, they were pretty damn good though. So that's uh, that's trapeze, very early trapeze. Um, and again, this is the. Uh, <laughs> wow, that's that's the band like the probably the earliest recording of Trapeze at least that I could find, and uh, they were on a BBC Two show, which I'm not sure if that's the one called Color Me Pop. That might have been it. Um, in the morning after it aired, they were contacted by George Martin, the producer of the Beatles, uh, to join the Beatles' Apple label, um, but they banned app opted not to join Apple because they thought that the direction that George Martin had in mind would have you know, taken them like into like more of a pop area or somewhere where they didn't really want to take the music. So uh, they just, it, pretty amazing, 16 years old to be like, no, thank you, George Martin of the Beatles. We're going to, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to try, we're going to try something else. Like, God, if George Martin called me when, you know, he's dead now, but if he called me and he's dead, he was like, I'd be, I'd, wherever he wants me to go, I'm going. Um, so they had their first album, Trapeze, was released, uh, and, and they played it track by track on BBC Radio 1, which they said they'd only previous do previously done for the for Beatles albums when they were released. So it was a little unusual to play an entire album in its entirety. So uh, wow. that's pretty impressive. Um, so after they kind of uh, broke up, or not broke up, but after they became a three-piece, they, they got a little bit more popular. But here's a little quick uh, play of some early trapeze. This is a song called Suicide, and it's off of the first album. It's actually written by Jones and Galley, not written by Hughes, but um, this is one of their early, early songs. Again, written by Jones and Galley, Terry Jones and... I'm sorry, John Jones and Mel Gelly. Is it on? I can't hear it. It is. It's very quiet at the beginning. Oh. It's one of those unnecessarily long intros. That's kind of why I picked it. It's got a really good groove to it. I always liked this one. I don't know why. Almost reminds me of the Rolling Stones. I don't know why. Hmm. I almost forgot about the album cover, too. It's very... Very 60s. Rem reminiscent of the Deep Purple album. It's just kind of uh, yeah, like some public domain art in black and white. Yeah, like a black and white... Yeah, old art. You can hear Glenn Hughes very strongly in the background vocals here. That's not him on lead? Nah, that's got to be Jones. Is that other guy? Yeah, see, that's why I don't really like this early stuff as much as because it's like you got 
there's like 10 people singing. It's like, I, I like one vocalist. You know, I, there's too much of this like two or three people in a chorus type thing. It doesn't really grab me that much. I like the, uh, I mean, I like, I like the trading off of vocals. I think that's kind of what I like the most about Mark three and Mark four. Oh no, I like that you too. Don't, you just don't like the like, big chorus vocals. Yeah, the, yeah, like the chorus. Yeah, I like people trading off vocals. I just like... See, like, I like this part of the song better. Yeah. Or even in the yeah, clip that we saw of them earlier, it was just like, it was just a lot of, like, people all singing at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Type of thing. I don't know, but it's because, you know why? I feel like in these these early types of songs, or like the, the record that you put on earlier, it was like there's no defined lead vocalist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of like episode six. There was like six yeah. people and six people <laughs> were doing lead vocals at various times. Yeah, you're just kind of like, oh, yeah, so the lead singer is uh, everybody. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like the organ, though, on the, if you can even call it the chorus. It's very like John Lord sounding. Yeah. Of course, they're not going to go into it now. So. <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. I like the groove. It's got a good, but I like kind of like the very mellow part where they're all singing together. That, that kind of does it for me. So anyway, that's Suicide by Trapeze by the first lineup. Almost makes me think a little bit of uh, Grand Funk because it's so bass heavy. You ever heard Grand yeah. Funk, yep. the early albums? I mean, they were... Um, really bass heavy uh, groove type of uh, band and that's one of the reasons I like them a lot but that's because they only had one they had one singer yeah like he didn't he didn't like track a lot of his vocals uh, at least in the beginning he didn't have a lot of like choruses and stuff like that didn't, with, they, like, didn't they switch off vocals a bit though like or um, well they, but, they but, did but only one lead singer at a time you mean yeah they did yeah. switch off because as the um, the guitar player and the drummer would sing and sometimes it would sing together but it was very like it was very live sounding was it mark i think Farner? that was it was that? mark farner and uh and uh don brewer don brewer yep yeah who's still in the band don brewer right i used um, to i still, still listen to e pluribus funk quite a bit oh uh, that was that's mostly a, that's because another, it's just so. one of the greatest album titles of all time yeah <laughs> it's a great <laughs> album cover like, it's a great album title and it's a great album it is a great album it's like um um, yeah, so I mean, that's that's one of the reasons that I like them so much is they had a real live sound, which is if like, I think if music like this, like even when they were like more mellow, if, if albums like this, in my opinion, had less, um, you know what, it just, it sounds like when you have a chorus with like a bunch of people singing, it sounds very meandering to me. Like it doesn't, it doesn't grab me. There's mm -hmm. no hook. Um, so that's probably why I don't like a lot of 60s stuff. Yeah, so, maybe it maybe uh, well, it speaks to you more if they like if they're singing as a backup with somebody singing over it, right? But like it's just yeah. it's kind of uh yeah, it's a lot. It's it's impressive because the harmonies are also good, but yeah, yeah. it can, can kind of get lost. Um so that's their first album, uh just simply called Trapeze. Um they uh shortly after that, uh uh, John uh, John Jones and Terry Rowley left the band, and again they become this the traditional three piece lineup. Um, Glenn Hughes talks a bit in his book about at this point 
at this point, excuse me, that the, the he was starting to see drugs around, uh, you know, quite a bit, but that he was like, he stayed away from it. He said he, he they kind of scared him, the drugs. And he, he said at this point, he didn't even like taking Tylenol. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> no, like um, I, I see it. I'm not really, I don't really want to get interested in. Uh, if only he had kept that attitude, it probably would have been a lot better for mm-hmm. him. But he's, you know, we talked before the show about how prolific Tommy Bolin was before he passed, and to think of how much he did while he was messed up on heroin and opium and all this crazy stuff, and the same thing for Glenn Hughes. What an amazing output for somebody who was just could barely get it together in his daily life. You know, he was he was hanging by a thread yeah. for twenty years, never stopped putting out music. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, at this point, he was not. Um, so I was. There's also a story one uh, in the book about um, Trapeze being on stage one night playing the song Medusa, which was written by Glenn Hughes. And John Bonham was like really. He was backstage and he was really interested in it. So he just went. And he took the drumsticks out of Dave Holland's hand and he just started playing the drums and played on stage with them for like. They said he wouldn't stop. It was like a 15-minute long version of the song. It would be awesome wow. if there was a recording of that somewhere. <laughs> but I guess he really liked the song. It really spoke to him. So this is the song off of their second album, which is also entitled Medusa. This is Medusa. Oh, that's a, that's a damn good song. Maybe see what John Bonham was into here. It's amazing how quickly they matured as a band, too. It's unreal. To me, I, I like everyone talks about the big three, but I almost think Trapeze needs a little more love for just kind of formulating a, a style of metal almost. Well, yeah, because I, I mean, mean, you're not hearing it same, now, but when the band kicks in. <laughs> well, this is the same type of formula that like Ronnie James Dio, Black Sabbath did. They they yes. hook you in with that, that really slow beginning and then boom, they hit you with the heavy... With just a, Hard, with, like with an right incredible riff, you know, this definitely very different formula from what we've been listening to lately with Deep Purple. Yeah. Tales of no one in my sleep. So at this point, Glenn Hughes would have been what eighteen. <sighs> Here he Jesus. is, the lead singer of this incredible three-piece band. That's like a Tony Iommi riff right there. Oh, yeah. Incredible. Well, is it any wonder that he wound up working with Iommi like many times over the following years? Right. It's just such a such a strong song and such a strong album. I I always feel like I liked this album a little bit more than uh, You're the Music, We're Just the Band. Although I like that album, too. But there's something about the rawness of this album. Yeah, this is very raw. You can hear them bringing in all of these what would become kind of almost cliche elements of early metal. And it wasn't at that point. Like they, they were, it, This was getting developed. This is the contemporary album to this is the Black Sabbath album and... Uh, in rock this, and you know this is, is coming this like out at the same 90, time 69 70 this album this came out in 70 yeah so 
But I mean, it's really produced really well, too. It's really crisp. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it, it's something you would have heard in the late 70s. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything is just really crisp. Like, all the instruments are defined. His vocals are, like, out front. <laughs> it's, like, really raw on the vocals, too. Like, no effects on the vocals. Just everything... That, yeah. It's like that that style you'd expect to hear more in the mid to later 70s and that dry drum sound really you just hit the snare and it's just like pop, you know not the you know the reverb that goes on for 16 seconds like in the 80s sort of yeah. sounding recordings but no no effects no synthesizers no just this would have been exactly what they sounded like live they probably recorded it live yeah Like it gives you a sense of where Glenn Hughes is coming from as a songwriter, and he wrote the song. He's the only one credited on the song. So the arrangement, too, he's going back to this part. You know, you've got this great riff. You know, that means Glenn Hughes wrote that, he wrote that, like, metal mm -hmm. riff. You know, it's it's great. But you can see now why... Deep Purple would have taken an interest in him as a songwriter, as a singer, and most importantly as a bass player. They they really speak highly of his his skills on the bass. But I feel like that always gets cast aside because of how big a personality he was and a big, how big of a voice he has. People don't talk as much about how great a bass player he was. And we always did. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, so I'm gonna. Cut it there. That's Medusa. Um, yeah, I mean, it almost when you hear his stuff with trapeze, it's almost like you wonder. It, it like it almost pales in comparison to what he did in Deep Purple. I yeah. mean, I would say like when I hear this stuff, I think it's because like he was he was one of three guys, and mm -hmm. then he walks into an established situation, and then he's one of like five guys. Yeah. Um, so. Maybe it was diluted a little bit, but it's it. A lot of times when I heard his trapeze stuff and then the the deep purple stuff, not to take away from the deep purple stuff, of course, but I kind of enjoy the trapeze stuff a little bit more with uh, for him. And it will come up again and again, but he was meant to be a lead singer, you know, like to to mm. to have him. I mean, even though he was, I mean, Mark three and Mark four essentially had two lead singers, you know, like they, yeah, you know, but. He wasn't the only guy. Yeah, and I mean, if Coverdale never, made it work, but yeah, I mean, if they never hired Coverdale, which let's not even talk about a universe where there's no Coverdale, <laughs> um, like they would have been fine with him on bass and vocals. Oh God, yeah, and they talk ab about that in a lot of the books I'm reading too about this, but particularly when <laughs> when Coverdale, you know, ends up leaving the band, and you know, and was it '76? You know, talking about do we press on with Hughes and honestly if Hughes hadn't been so messed up on drugs they probably would have and, well, I mean, and it was easily John could Lord, have John Lord and Ian Pace were the only ones like if, if Coverdale left then he was the those were the only two guys that weren't screwed up all the time so <laughs> right. if you think about it so that's when they decided to end it exactly because I mean because I mean you've seen the 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 interviews with uh I'm sure with John Lord and everything talking mm -hmm. about this, this beautiful thing that we started, I just couldn't stand to see it in the state that it was in anymore. So there was like one night when they just walked off stage and he uh, turned to Ian Pace and was like, that's it. We gotta, yeah. we gotta pull the plug or it's a paraphrasing of course, but the famous story. Yep. 
Of that's how the the first incarnation ended until eighty four. Right. Right. And I mean, I, we wouldn't even be talking about them continuing on without Coverdale because Coverdale wouldn't have left either. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> there was, and John Lord also talks about like, wow, like he 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 says we we would have had another album in us at least with that lineup. And we could have done, he, he says he's he's very happy with Come Taste the Band, but imagine what they could have put forward had yeah. Bolin and Hughes had it together, you know? It's pretty amazing stuff. Um, so after that, we come to the last album or recording that uh, Glenn Hughes would have before joining Deep Purple, and that is um, picked the song Coast to Coast off of the album You're the Music, We're Just the Band. Oh, that's Always another good one. It's a classic Hughes song. It really showcases uh, his vocals. Yeah, but well, this is just a great song, too. Like, so, I just love when Glenn Hughes writes this type of song or sings this type of song. He's so good at it. Yeah. This is probably one of my favorite ballads of all time. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. But like every time I hear this song, it just reminds me of why I love it so much. Yeah, I mean, listen to him. It's like his voice is flawless. It's always. It's always flawless. Even when he's getting crazy and hitting those like high pitched notes that are just like too high. <laughs> he's he's an incredibly gifted singer and he would have been the ripe old age of 20 this came out and then I think like when he did that 80s album with um what's his name um that guitar player Hughes Thrall Thrall, Thrall, and they redid this song like 80s style and it was nowhere near as good yeah it's always hard to do that Mm. I think the only time that's really been successful is uh when White Snake redid Here We Go Again or Here I Go Again that's true um but that wasn't even that many years later. Yeah, I know. It was like it three not. years later or something? Yeah, something like that. I always thought it was weird that they did that. I mean, obviously it worked out very well for them. But, um, oh, yeah, that's generally... It's it's hard to... There's always that kind of thought of, like, let's try to recapture the magic or redo the formula like we talked about with uh, who do we think we are. Let's Oh, let's do the same formula we did for Machine Head. And it very rarely works out that way. Yeah. But yeah, so that's coast to coast, you know, and I feel like we'll get a little bit more into these probably as we get into our reviews eventually of of the albums by Trapeze because, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, I mean, Trapeze is so good. They've changed the way I say Trapeze. Like growing up, you'd say Trapeze. But now it's like yeah. T R apostrophe P's, you know. And ever ever since I got into trapeze, I, <laughs> I kind of trapeze. I kind of say trapeze, but if it's like at the circus, I'm like, oh, that's a trapeze, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, really amazing stuff. Always love that band, and um, they do a, a lot of stuff even after this. They kind of try to get together again after after Hughes leaves Purple, and uh, with worse results because of. Hughes's unfortunate cocaine habit. Mm. So, 
as this song plays out, um, still some like a little background in, in in how they got Hughes into the band. So Richie said he wanted to get a new bass player and singer to do more melodic content. Gillen, as we know, had given his nine months notice, and the band and management basically didn't do anything until Ian Gill left in June, and then they were like, "Oh crap, we need to get replacements." So. <laughs> Idiots. Kind of shows some of the ineptitude of the management, but also I I wonder if they were just like, nah, he's just he's not gonna really leave. Uh, and then when he left, they're like, I guess we really need to do something. John Lord said that kind of their the routine was getting tired of what they were doing and how they were doing music, and he was also looking for something new. And he toyed at that point with leaving the band. He wasn't happy how the things went with Roger Glover. And, you know, he was kind of doing his working on his Windows project and he was like, maybe I should just leave the band. But he eventually stuck around. Um, Richie Blackmore really wanted to get Paul Rogers in the band. He talks about it all the time. Paul Rogers, Paul Rogers. He wanted Paul Rogers in the band. He wanted him in everything he worked on. He always wanted Paul Rogers. I don't think it ever happened. (laughs) Maybe it happened somewhere down the line, but not that I'm familiar with. Um, But Paul Rogers also had a reputation of being a bit of a control freak. He was in the band Free at that time, and then he left the band and started uh, formed Bad Company instead of going with Deep Purple. Um, uh, can you imagine having like another control freak with Blackmore in the band? I'm sure that would have. <laughs> so now, so he can always think longingly of what it would have been like to work with Paul Rogers, but he probably would have hated him. I mean, is there any singer besides uh, his wife that he's <laughs> ever gotten along with? I don't know. And they've been doing it for a while too. So she must be, she must be really over 20 years. I mean, obviously that, I mean, not that's his fourth marriage. Whoa. And, and his, who knows, 12th lead singer at least. Um, So, I mean, you know, either he, she calmed him down or she must be really submissive. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe she's just like, whatever, Richie, I'll I'll sing with it. I mean, she seems like, I got to say all my interviews I've seen with her, she seems like just like, the nicest, like most happy-go-lucky kind of person you could possibly imagine. And there's there's actually a really great interview on YouTube, which you should look up. It's like him and her doing an interview together, and you just see Richie being Richie, and she's just like the last person on earth you'd ever expect would be married to Richie Blackmore because she's so like bubbly and happy and upbeat and like positive, and he's just being kind of like you know really sarcastic and that dry sense of humor. Um, but yeah, it's it's really funny, and I, I think. I mean, she was obviously very good for him, both, uh, both uh, in their personal relationship and in their musical relationship, because um, <laughs> he's worked with some of the greatest vocalists in rock history and managed to have fights with all of them. So, so anyway, <laughs> Paul Rogers turns down the job, um, and uh, Richie. Richie said, "Well, John is going to go off and do his thing with Tony Ashton, and I'm going to make." Uh, I'm going to go make this rock band and take Pacey with me, you know. Um, he wanted to start a new band. He was always, you know, he toyed with that thing with Phil Lynott, with Babyface. He toyed with uh, all the stuff that he wanted to do. But um, he eventually was convinced to stay. Roger Glover takes over as the head of A&R at Purple Records, uh, which is funny. You know, he gets kicked out of the band, but he's still like a major player at Purple Records. And he starts focusing on production and does production for huge, like lots of huge bands and lots of big albums. Um, Richie Blackmore says, you know, I was writing 80% of the stuff, but the credit was being split five ways. I got tired of not getting the respect. Then I decided that we were stagnating. I told Ian, the drummer, that I was happy with the way, I wasn't happy with the way things were going. I didn't want any trouble within the group. Um, 
so let me leave and let's come come with me. We'll do our own band. But Ian convinces him to stay. So Glenn Hughes, it's 1972. They're playing a few nights at the Whiskey A Go Go, and Richie, John, and Ian Pace all join the audience, uh, go to the audience, but all separately on all other different nights, and they they go to see the the band. And Glenn Hughes is on stage, and he's like, "Oh wow, they must be big fans of Trapeze." I didn't know, but they were really there to to scout him out, obviously. Um, they asked him to join and he said, no, no, I'm not really interested, but then pretty quickly changed his mind. Uh, Richie invites Glenn to his house in, in, in South London. They jam, uh, on, on our track that will eventually turn into mistreated and talk about kind of Richie's vision for where he wants the band to go. Um, Glenn joined under the assumption that he'd be replacing both Roger Glover and Ian Gillen and moving forward as a four piece. Um, but then they, you know, obviously go off and hire Coverdale. And Glenn Hughes seems pretty good with that. And him and Coverdale have always had a really good relationship. So there was no, not a lot of animosity there. He was just kind of surprised. He thought they were more interested in him as a singer than, but but Blackmore seems like he was more interested in him as a bass player. Mm-hmm. Um, Glenn Hughes talks about when he first joins Deep Purple. You know, this is right after they released, um, you know, Who Do We Think We Are, Made in Japan. He says he's getting like, all these plaques and gold records and like a watch that he's like, and this, he's like, this, this is Roger Glover's watch. I shouldn't have this, you know, like all of this, all of these accolades and things for stuff that the band had done. And even Roger Glover talks about it in one of his interviews where they say like, cause deep purple was the number one selling band that year. And they put up a picture of the Mark three lineup over it. And Roger Glover's really pissed off. Cause he's like, <laughs> they haven't even recorded or played with them yet. Um, so, uh, but obviously those guys all really, I think they all handled it really well and they all played on each other's stuff and were still good friends. Yeah. Um, Hughes claims that uh, Coverdale was the only one auditioned as a vocalist, but Coletta, John Coletta, their manager, says that multiple other people auditioned, although I can't find any proof of that anywhere. Uh, Coletta says that people were, didn't, when they were coming into audition, they didn't know who they were auditioning for. for. They just came in and they're like, oh, oh crap, this is Deep Purple. And then... Um, Sheila Hughes says in Hughes' biography that uh, ELO was also interested in, in Deep Purple, and he almost joined ELO, but he ended up turning them down and uh, joins, uh, joins Deep Purple instead. So now they've got... He, he who? Uh, he I'm who, sorry, Hugh, Hughes. Hughes. He who, who, who he. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, he, he who. He who, who he. Uh, she, yeah, so Glenn Hughes' mom says ELO courted him and they like he was like agonizing do I join ELO or do I join Deep Purple but in the book Smoke on the Water they said he had kind of already turned ELO down a while before that so I don't know how he actually went down and Glenn Hughes doesn't talk about it in his book just his mom does oddly <laughs> um, hmm. so that brings us to the next man David Coverdale now this is our really favorite our favorite uh, your favorite Twitter user favorite uh, horny lead singer just, uh, just <laughs> all around awesome, <laughs> and That's he's contending with a lot. Horny lead singer. He's contending with a lot of horny lead singers too. Let me be perfectly clear. So, no, but I'm excited about this because I don't know anything about Coverdale before Deep Purple. So, lay it on me. Well, this is—it's a huge, long story, and it's actually really—it's um, mind-boggling how he ended up in Deep Purple. Like to this day, I think even in interviews now, he's just like, "I don't know 
how I ended up in Deep Purple, but he's still very thankful to the band and for everything because it obviously put him on the map and he's had no struggles since then. Uh, but he also grew up just like he was as an only child. He started performing professionally at 14 and he was in all of these kinds of bands, but, but you know, the little local bands. A band called The Skyliners, a, a band called Vintage 67, a band called Magdalene, Denver Mule, The Government. Um, and The Government is kind of like one of the later bands that he was in. I've got a image here that I found from, let's see, where is it? So this is something David Coverdale had tweeted a while ago that I found. And it is a picture of, he says, Denver Mule, a local band I opened this, uh, I was in, opened this festival way, way back in Z-Day. And he puts a little smiley face. So it's a little poster of this this. Um, festival is August 31st, 1968. Uh, a lot of bands. I've, uh, the Family, which I don't know if that's the same as Family. Joe Cocker's Grease Band. Um, all of these bands. Uh, Traffic. And I guess his band opened up for them at this at this festival. And then there's a... Well, look uh, at all these people. Look at all those bands on that. There's a Traffic and Steve Winwood, yep. Benny King... Oh, uh, and, the Amboy Dukes was um and Rivers, was, uh, uh, Ted Nugent and Rivers Invitation. I know just from my doing my researches was another name I believe for Denver Mule formed into the government and then the government changed into Rivers Invitation. I think um, I could be wrong on that, but uh, he was in so many bands that were like just the names were constantly changing. But Rivers Invitation would have been his band. Wow, cool. And then here's a picture of them. You can see him in the middle there, kind of crouched over. You know, they're just playing a show on the grass. There's no stage. Um, this is Denver Mule, 1968. Alan Todd on guitar, John Collins on drums, uh, uh, Mick Martin on guitar, and Jeff Tisbury on bass. So wow. there they are playing. Um, and it looks like, I don't know, just like kind of an abandoned lot or something. A little... <laughs> Their speakers are all set down really low. David Cardale's hunched over. Like, I don't know if he's hunched over because maybe the mic cable wasn't long enough. Like, he had to just lean over to just to, to sing into the mic. Um, but some yeah. pretty pretty interesting stuff. And then I have to share, the next picture is, uh, if you haven't seen this before, you, you got to get ready. That is what? the government. <laughs> And just look at David Is Coverdale. That that's, David, that's David no. Coverdale. So for those... I this, don't... I, <laughs> I don't I, even know what he looks like. I don't even know what I'm laughing at. I know. I know. I knew you would like this. Uh, I, I wasn't sure if you'd seen it uh, or not before, but this is one that's been floating around. I remember seeing this picture like you know, back in the mid nineties when you'd be like looking at like the Deep Purple Appreciation Society or something. If you go way back into the archives, you'd find this photo and it's the band of, you know, you've got a guy on sax, a guitar player, must be the drummer because he's not holding anything, a bass player and a trumpet player, and all respectably dressed in, you know, suits of the day and ties and dress shoes. And then dead center is David Coverdale with this crazy hair, these dark, dark sunglasses, this very, very sketchy, uh, sketchy little pencil mustache. Then he's got this big ascot on around his neck 
and he's wearing like some sort of weird like big- double-breasted number. And the, the way he's going like this, just the way he's kind of like folding his arms, just almost makes it look like he's doing like a like a like like trying to be like a homeboy or something. It's a very <laughs> odd stance he has. Well, he looks like he's at least like twenty pounds heavier than oh, yeah. he was later. And it, it looks like a, what is that? It looks like a pea coat and like the, the yes. gift wrap yeah. bow around his neck. <laughs> that's that's actually it's a like, better description what, than a, than than an like ascot. A, that's that it does look like a gift wrapped. <laughs> like I'm looking at him and he's like he looks like he looks like something, but I can't put my finger on it or like somebody, but it's. He's, well, the, he's David the sunglasses and the mustache definitely. I mean, he looks extremely sketchy. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want to see him outside the elementary school or anything, you know. No, he would be. Uh, <laughs> he would not be welcome. <laughs> You'd expect him to throw him see, in a paddy wagon. <laughs> <laughs> you expect to see him knocking on doors to introduce himself because of his past uh, past performance. Um, here's another oh. really early picture of Denver Mule in 1967 with David Coverdale. Um, Wait, is that him on the left? That's him on the left. Yep. My God, I've never seen. I'm like blown away right now. I've never seen like young pictures of Coverdale. Like, what's he like? Fifteen? Uh, Fifteen or sixteen, maybe. Well, wait, Denver, Denver Mule, 1967. So he's like him and Hugh's got to be around the same yeah, age. He's right? probably fifteen, no older than sixteen. I wouldn't think. I mean, look at those other. Well, you could. T- those other two guys don't. They look pretty young too. So. But I mean, Coverdale's like you can tell, like by just by his face, that's him. Yeah. But it's at the same time, it's like you're looking at it and you're like, oh, that's gonna be like Coverdale's younger brother or his cousin or something. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but he's got crazy. he's got the big, big, thick glasses, and you know, yeah, it's definitely uh, definitely a, a look. So some some cool um, archival <laughs> photos. I'll have them in the again in the show notes. Um, and then interestingly, uh, there's this photo here, which captures him looking kind of similar to what he would have looked like in Deep Purple, wearing that kind of yes, almost almost looks like he borrowed that shirt from Richie Blackmore. Um, kind of <laughs> like the guy on the left. <laughs> <laughs> he looks he literally it doesn't even look like he has sunglasses on he looks like a fly like he looks like he's got big bug eyes and like he looks like that that uh that who's the guy that founded the church of satan he was like, <laughs> it's like he oh looks God. like a fly he does look at him. He's got like, if you look at it really quick, it doesn't even look like sunglasses. He looks like, he looks like Jeff Goldblum in that movie. Like he's got the big fucking bug eyes and like a, like a devil, like beard and everything. And that's the most evil looking man I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, it's the same guy from, uh, it would have been the same guy from this photo, right? Which one is he here? I don't know. I don't know, but who the... He went through a real transformation, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yes, the fly is kind of a transformation. It's like a, you know, it's a, it's a Kafka-esque story. But yeah, Coverdale definitely looks more like himself uh, the, as we know him <laughs> when he joined Deep Purple, for sure. He does a lot more, yes. Um, Yikes. So, Yikes. So they were, you know, the, the government was previously Denver Mule, so they kind of changed the name to the government. They have a real blood, sweat, and tears sort of sound, which I like. Um, I could hear that. Mostly because I, I could see that. Probably doing uh, song like songs with horns and stuff. But uh, Malcolm Buckton, the bass player, changed the name from the Skyliners when he uh, from the Skyliners when he saw the new government health warning as he opened a pack of cigarettes. So he said, "Let's name ourselves the government." Okay. 
Um, and this is the group that Coverdale was in when they opened for Deep Purple and John and he talked to John Lord and said, oh, hey, if uh, things don't work out with this new Ian Gillen guy, here's my number. And, you know, it would have been four years later, but eventually it, it did happen. So here's a couple songs. Uh, this first song is, let me pick this up. Uh, this song is called Bang Bang. And this is by the government. And this is a cover. weird you almost can't tell it's him until then there's another good picture of him <laughs> this is this is bow tie <laughs> this is where you can hear these little kind of like flashes of of coverdale of trademark coverdale but Oh, you can definitely tell it's him. Yeah, at first you can't, but when he gets into it, you... Dave Coverdale. Dave Coverdale, yeah. It's funny calling him Dave for some reason. <laughs> this part just does not sound like him. <laughs> picture. It's my new favorite picture of Coverdale right there. It's my new favorite picture ever. Yeah, just not of Coverdale, just of anything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, it's your favorite picture. <laughs> End quote. So, that kind of gives you the idea. That's that's where this band was coming from. Some pretty good, uh, you know, not, not bad. I mean, this was this was recorded extremely uh, amateurishly. It's not mm -hmm. a very great quality, but. But you can hear some really good flashes of what Coverdale will evolve into. So he was in this band. There was a, he was in another band called Rivers Invitation, which I think was the same band. He was in a band called Fabulosa Brothers, <laughs> which apparently was the band that he was in when he joined Deep Purple. Um, but then. Here's another song uh, from the government. Which a song you will undoubtedly recognize. Again, quality is not 100% there, but 
song we're all familiar with, and, it, and David Coverdale's got quite a bit of soul dripping into the song. So that's kind of mostly where they were at. <laughs> you look- oh man, the oh the I mean, it's like Coverdale sounds great, but the the music sounds awful. Like the the instruments were just recorded terrible. Oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's like- I mean, this is probably recorded like a microphone in a room, you know? Like yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, you can definitely hear like Coverdale's like raw voice. Like it's it's not far off from the Coverdale that we all know and adore. No, not not too far off at so, all. So. So, to give you a give you an idea, there were, there were some demos that he sent in, and maybe we'll get to those in a minute. But um, Blackmore says, uh, "Glenn, we saw at the marquee, and Ian and John said we must have him, but we still needed another singer, a more masculine voice." I was off to form a band with Ian Pace. I thought it would be an adventure, but Ian Pace said it would be silly to abandon all our efforts. Probably in three years, the band will have to reshuffle again. Maybe David and Glenn will be getting new members. Uh, Blackmore said, um, I could put Ian down, but I don't think I want to get into that because he's never put any of the band down. He's talking about Ian Gillen. I thought Ian Gillen was a very good vocalist and he had a great face and image. He got a lot of people interested in Deep Purple, but then his vocals began to not do anything for me. I used to say, I think that vocal is a load of shit. (laughs) And this is why Ian and I fell out. I wasn't quite satisfied. The band was always a bit poppy. Uh, it was quite nice, but it was too poppy. Um, they went through a bunch of demo tapes, including a lot of like Gillen impersonators. People, you know, wanted to be the next Ian Gillen, but that's not the direction they wanted. Uh, they said there was even a 15-year-old with no experience who sent in, uh, which is not too far off from Coverdale, uh, but sent in a tape, and you know, uh, well, who they ended up getting was not too much farther off from from a 15-year-old uh, with no experience. It was a whatever 20-year-old with a little experience. Um, they they said they were they were really struggling to fill this vocalist spot. They considered being a four piece, uh, but Coverdale had supported Deep Purple. And on November twenty second, nineteen sixty nine, at Bradford University, like I said, he gave Lord his number. Uh, and in nineteen seventy three, he was an un, uh, an unknown twenty one year old, um, uh, and uh, he ends up. Uh, sending in this demo, as we'll see in a little bit. Uh, he was working at a, a store called Stride and Style in Red Car, which was a clothing store. Coverdale, um, he read the Melody Maker advertisement saying they were looking for a band, and he was like, during his lunch break, and he said, maybe I'll audition. He knew this local promoter named Roger Barker, um, of the promoter of the Red Car Jazz Club, where Deep Purple had played, and he is who ended up helping David Coverdale get the tape into the right hands. Uh, Coverdale didn't have any pictures. <laughs> he didn't have like a picture to send in, which they needed with the audition. So he, the only picture he had was a picture of him in his Boy Scout uniform from his mom. So he sent that in. So we're already seeing this, the kind of, how did this happen? You know, like how did this kind of goofy, weird looking, unknown guy who did a lot of things wrong, possibly get the job as like one of the, in one of the biggest bands in the world. Um, his band demo that he sent in was from the Fabulosa Brothers uh, and they recorded at Strawberry Studios in Stockport and Ian Pace in the book Smoke on the Water says Ian Pace is very direct 
Um, David's tape was rubbish, except for four bars where he actually sung really hard. And I thought there was something in his voice that was really good. So I said, let's get him down here. He had these incredibly awful glasses on and this strange, not quite straight hair. And he had an eye that wandered around. I'm sure it was a nervous thing and he was massively overweight, but we got him in the studio and he sang very well. But part of the deal was if you're going to come into the band, you've got to look different to that because he looked exactly what he was, a chap from a clothing store who really didn't give a toss about himself. He agreed to everything because he wanted in and became the glorious <sighs> David Coverdale that everybody knows and loves today. So, wow. And See, so I wasn't off, though. He was overweight. Yeah, he was. He, he was. I mean, he says massively overweight. I think that's a little... It's a little bit of an exaggeration. I mean, yeah, well, he, I mean, he looked 20 pounds heavier than normal Coverdale, but... Well, I mean, if you look at like, I don't know, say like if they were used to like Ian Gillen and then you see a guy that's like 20 pounds heavier than Ian Gillen, that would be probably massive to them. Yeah. And I guess for, you know, like looking for the, the right look, it's which seemed to be very important to them. So here's a um, clip of one of the songs on this demo that he sent in that Ian Pace said was rubbish. Again, not the uh, greatest audio quality. In that picture, you can definitely tell he's got more weight on him. <laughs> Yeah, to listen to that voice, he, I mean, he, he had it. Just like the early stuff we listened to by Glenn Hughes. I mean, he had it from the get-go. Mm-hmm, yeah. And this is without the aid of any sort of studio trickery. This is... The first time he was really spent any time in the studio was recording Burn. So that gives you kind of an idea. Like, again, there's not much going on in the song, but when you're listening to his singing, yeah. you can really, really hear it. So they said they, you know, they gave him some contact lenses and diet pills and you know, diet pills, which was just <laughs> speed. Um, Rob, Cooks, Rob Cooksey, their road manager, said he was wired out all the time when they made uh, Burn. Uh, but he weathered the problem really well because he had a strong personality. So he's kind of like just all wired up trying to lose weight, which he seems to have kept off for 50 years almost. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't well, remember him ever kind of putting any weight back on. Well, yeah, I mean, it's either uh, diet pills. You either live uh, to a ripe old age like David Coverdale or you become addicted and like go down in flames like freaking Judy Garland or whatever. Right. It, it's so weird. <laughs> it, it's so weird the different um, takes on it. Like, I mean, growing up, like in the era that we grew up in, we were kind of the, the philosophy with kids is just scare them straight into not doing drugs. So they'd be like, if you even look at cocaine you'll become instantly addicted and die within three hours and i'm like oh so that's kind of what i always you know that's why i've never touched the stuff <laughs> i was just like well i was i was terrified of it mm -hmm. and you know um <laughs> now i'm terrified of it for different reasons but you know like i i feel like we were we were scared by that stuff like maybe not people not being 100 percent honest but in in reading the book it seems like david coverdale you know like 
from what Glenn Hughes says, like, yeah, we'd be, you know, on the weekend, David Coverdale would, you know, do a, you know, he would do a line of coke and then he'd be like, all right, boys, see you later. And, you know, Glenn Hughes would be up for, you know, 10 days straight doing coke like every two hours, you know, like, so it's, it really has a lot to do with whatever receptors in your brain that that triggers because some people could just do it here and there and it's not a problem and some people it's, it's, it ruins their life. Mm-hmm. So and here I am about halfway through Glenn Hughes's autobiography, and I'm like, "Yep, I'm, I don't know if I'm one of the people that would be addicted to it and ruin my life or not." But uh, it sounds awful, <laughs> like all this, all the stuff he's like being up for ten days and all the stuff. It's just like, oh my god, it sounds just terrible. Um, so anyway, they call him. They call David Coverdale in the studio to audition for them. Coverdale says he arrived with some Dutch courage, which means uh, 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 Bell's whiskey. And then he, there he talks about where he met John and Ian. He says, Pacey and Lordy were already at the studio when I arrived. Mr. Lord was exceptionally charming and welcoming, doing his best to put me at ease, whilst Ian was messed around on his Ludwig drum kit. Richie arrived next with his wife Babs and their two wolfhounds from Rich, whom Richie obviously doted on. He completely ignored me other than a quick surrept- surreptitious look to check me out, a brief nod when we made eye contact. Without missing a beat, I was off to the whiskey for a quick, nervous sip. Er, make that gulp. <laughs> you know, kind of imagine Coverdale singing that. Yeah. He said he felt very, <laughs> he felt self-conscious about his look, so he borrowed clothes from the store that he worked at to to go for the audition. Um, and then he said when Glenn Hughes arrived, like he felt a little more at ease. Like Glenn Hughes was a story. Like he came in and he like, he like walked into the doorway or something, and like. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody laughed and he said he felt a little bit better. Um, <laughs> so they jammed with Coverdale improvising. Coverdale said that he'd learned Strange Kind of Woman and they played like a kind of a slower, bluesier version of that. Would love to hear that. Um, mm. And Blackmore said, okay, you can sing rock. Let's see what you can do with with a ballad. Anything you want to see? And Coverdale suggested singing Yesterday uh, by the Beatles and he claims that that's what got him the gig. Um, so Coverdale met with John Coletta who Coverdale says interrogated him about if he ever had any criminal convictions or an unsavory past that could embarrass the band. I mean, what what kind of past could embarrass like a 70s rock band, like the debauchery they're getting up to? <laughs> oh my God, I know. Like, have right? you ever killed anyone? That's pretty probably the only thing, really. You've got all these, all these famous rock stars who did horrible things, who should probably be in prison, but... Um, uh, so he passed the test... Uh, John gave him uh, some, he gave him 50 pounds to get some new clothes and a haircut and <laughs> not embarrass the band, I guess. And then Ian Pace says he drove Coverdale to the train station and Coverdale used the money to buy himself a first class ticket on the train. And then he didn't hear anything back from them for like a week before he got the call to come back to London that he got the gig. Wow. So pretty amazing uh, story. It's, you know, people say it, it is, it's a Cinderella story, really. I mean, it's just completely crazy that they didn't go with like a, a well-known although richie kind of has a formula for doing that doesn't he i mean he always kind of picks up some you know kind of some guy some like new you know unknown entity and and and, and makes them a a world-class singer um so he he said he uh he they he said the management told him that he'd be getting 80 pounds a week to sound the contract. And Coverdale says, well, that's kind of, that's the same he was making working at the clothing store. Oh, man. Um, but then the band Sucks. said, well, they'll take care of everything else. Clothes, living expenses, equipment, all travel, 
would be paid by the band, mm. and he and he'd be a one fifth member of the band. So, uh, so he said he'd take the contract and look it over, and then John Coletta like went absolutely crazy on him, screaming at him, and then he's like, "I could get Mick Jagger in here tomorrow to be the singer of this band," and blah blah blah, you know, just like saying all this crazy stuff. And then he said he felt intimidated. He's like, "Well, I don't want to blow this. Like, I better sign this contract." And then later he talks about telling John Lord about this, like years later. And John Lord was like furious. He's like, you never should have signed that contract. Um, oh, this, this John Coletta guy sounds like an asshole. <laughs> I just, I, every, I don't like him. Everything I've heard about him, I dislike. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine there were a lot of um, great people who were managing rock bands in the seventies. Oh, that guy is just a, ch- a warm hearted, loving person who just cares about oh, my. The- Oh, he's charming. Oh, what a, what a gentleman. You know? <laughs> um, so Coverdale was, you know, so here he is. He's in the, he, now he's in the band. He gets invited to Blackmore's house to write some songs. Um, uh, Blackmore had made the decision to stay in purple because he wanted the creative control. Coverdale <clears throat> uh, returned home with a cassette of Blackmore's music. Blackmore gives him this music. Here's all my riffs and the songs we're working on so that he can take it home and, and write lyrics. So he starts kind of writing lyrics to all the songs. Um, Coverdale, uh, the band met at Clearwell Castle in, Gl- Gl- I'm going to say this wrong. I'm sorry to our UK listeners. Gloucestershire? It's like one of those words. It's probably just Gloucester, but <laughs> Gl- it's like it's like Worc- Worcestershire sauce, and it's just called Worcestershire sauce. So maybe it's just Gloucester. I don't know. Well, you you just say it really fast. I just sound drunk. <laughs> okay, so anyway, they they were there. <laughs> they, were, they were at the place that I talked about. They were at that place that he just mentioned. Um, it's like this is their first like real jam session. Coverdale's really nervous, and they said John Lord um, just started playing some Beatles songs, and so that they could just kind of break the ice. And he started singing along and felt a little better. Uh, Coverdale says that the songs they worked on were put together with input from Lord Pace and Hughes, but they were all they but but Blackmore kind of had the final say on everything. Um, Coverdale, shocker, yeah. shocker. <laughs> the only, Sorry, the only thing we didn't say is like we said. Coverdale refused, <laughs> or no, uh, Blackmore refused. Blackmore refused. That's like the 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 word that most commonly comes after Blackmore. Blackmore refused. <laughs> Um, so Coverdale said he was just in complete disbelief going from, you know, he says, what a band, what an unbelievable, powerful collective this was. It's easy for me as a singer to stand back and watch and listen. It was incredible. I couldn't believe my luck in being involved with this enterprise. Please, if this is a dream, don't wake me up. So rightly grateful for the amazing opportunity he's been given. So the band flies to Hamburg, uh, and they checked into the Atlantic hotel for a long weekend off from rehearsals. Uh, at the at the clubs, uh, Blackmore Blackmore takes Coverdale to some of the clubs in Hamburg, and, and he says, "Watch the temp, watch what tempos the girls are dancing to the most, and that's what we want in our songwriting." <laughs> it's a weird thing to say. Um, so it's, oh, man. it sounds like he was starting to learn uh, about being a horn dog from the old uh, <laughs> rich man himself. <laughs> oh. So they do. Uh, do I have a picture of it? Uh, maybe I don't. Um, there is like a famous picture, and I I might not have it right here. I'll look for it while I'm looking at it up. But they go to the the this castle in. Sure, 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 sure. 
Um, and they <laughs> Gloucestershire sauce. Uh, Gloucestershire sauce. And they, um, you know, they kind of announce, they make an announcement to the world that, hey, this is, uh, this is the band now. This is Deep Purple. And here's a photo right here of the band. Oops. I can open up. And this is kind of their announcement to the world of like, here, it's, here's our new lineup. And that's all them there at like the kind of balcony of the, of the castle over, overlooking it. And there's David Coverdale looking a little more like the Coverdale we know. Mm -hmm. um, they've got like, everyone's got like, a, Ian Pace has got like a pint of beer. There's like some Johnny Walker red label there. Um, well, look, they all got, they all got drinks. It looks like. It looks like all of them have drinks. Yep. Uh, well, Coverdale looks like he's kind of holding a dagger. I know he's not, but. <laughs> a dagger. Oh yeah, I can see that. It looks like the hilt of the. No, <laughs> there's a lot of other photos from that day and it's, yeah, it's just a glass of like brandy or something. It, it, it's like the same glass that John Lord has there on them. Mm -hmm. It looks like Richie's drinking um, water. But mm. Anyway, um, that's where they kind of announced this new lineup to the world. Um, uh, and, you know, the press was all invited to ask them questions and they were all basically like, oh, wow, it's great to see. Who the hell is this guy? <laughs> like nobody knows, it, which rightly so. That And the band was very supportive of, of him and backed him up and... Blackmore says on the new lineup, he says, you could say a Beatles feel with a hard rock backing in the, is the basic thing. We expect a vocalist to take on the part of a lead instrument. Who knows? After the LP, we might be saying he's, Coverdale, he's a shitty vocalist as well. I'm not to say he's the best vocalist in the world, but when we heard him, we thought, Christ, he's good. There are now two other guys involved, so it makes more or less a new band to me. It's not to, it's not Deep Purple anymore, although it's the same name. Really, it's a completely different band, which I would kind of agree with. I'm still glad they were Deep Purple. Me too. I mean, it doesn't really matter in the end. But yeah, it's, every time there's yeah. a lineup change, it's kind of like a new thing. Um, and then they definitely, as we know, take it into a very different direction from what they were doing in Mark II. You know, I was uh, like just thinking of um, when you said earlier that they... Uh, he learned, um, Coverdale learned, what was it? Strange Kind of Woman? Yeah. And then you said, let's uh, let's play a ballad, they said. Mm -hmm. Or let's play a slower song. Wouldn't, like, I? they probably never did, to my knowledge. But wouldn't it have been amazing if they tried to do a version of Child in Time with Coverdale and Hughes doing the vocals? I think they did, and I haven't heard it, but I've seen that there's, I think there might be recordings out there of David Coverdale singing it. Because I feel like they would have been able, like Coverdale would have been able to handle the 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 beginning parts. But then I feel like him and Hughes could have like harmonized like the 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 bridge or the chorus parts or whatever. Yeah, or something like I don't know. Yeah, I was thinking Hughes could have done like, like the, the high parts that. like easily. Um, yeah, yeah. And then but and, that would have been really cool, like new twist on it if they had ever done it. Or I, I haven't heard it, but. No, that, that, that would, would have been that would be incredible. I have seen people talk about it, but I, I don't know if there's a recording out there, but we should find it. And there's probably people yelling at the podcast right now. You idiots, you say you're the Deep Purple podcast. How do you not know this? It exists, you <laughs> wankers. Because they might be they might in be British right now. They might be British. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I and here's another thing that I think of, just kind of a random thought. Is there a cover of Child in Time that anybody's done? I'd like to hear that. Hmm. I, I think I'm going to go searching for it because that's 
has nothing to do with this episode, but I'm just like, no, now I'm curious. I am looking now. I've seen some different covers, but it's like mostly stuff on YouTube and not necessarily by bands that you would know, like just by, by people like on YouTube. It says that Yingwei did a cover of it. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not surprised. Yingwei has done like a cover of like everything Deep Purple, it seems. Yeah, it was covered by Yingwei Malmsteen on his 1996 album Inspiration. Oh, and okay. then as we that all know, sense. Ian Gillen, they say Ian Gillen did a cover of it, which I think is like not necessarily true it's kind of his song but on his solo album he does it but Um, that's a great version on his solo album but i mean i'm talking about like he i like it because he did it in a different uh like a different style and tempo and everything but i mean somebody not in the band like even like one of these little like these youtube sensations that we've been seeing like a 15 year old vocalist or something like tackling child in time that would be Really interesting to see. Well, it was covered on the uh, you know the remachined uh, cover album of Machine Head. Yeah. So it was covered on there by um, what, Cactus Jack. I, I'm not familiar with with their work, but um, I I think they're like from Europe or something. But they they did a they did a cover of it on that album because obviously it's it's a cover of the entire album. So. Um, Anyway, so that kind of leads us up to, again, it's kind of like the last episode we did. There was too much to cram into the who Who do we think we are episode, so we kind of had to do a separate episode. And we always like to do these little episodes that are little wind-ups or, or to, to let you know, like, who are the people coming into the band? Where are they from? Especially for people that aren't already familiar. And here we are, you know, almost at the 90-minute mark. So that would have been a lot to cram into what's already probably going to be a quite lengthy episode on the burn album. So when we get to next week, we can just kind of jump right in and tackle burn and talk about just how incredible that album is, which we toyed with doing right now, like after this episode, just recording a second episode, but, um, yeah, (laughs) it's, it's already what, like 11 PM your time. So yeah, we'd we'd be easily going until one or two in the morning. So, uh, we're probably going to wrap it up there, but we got to talk one, Real quick thing, which is uh, this week in deep purple history, when this episode comes out on August 12th, the week of August 12th through the 18th, we've got a few historical milestones to talk about. We've got the hair himself, Mr. Tommy Aldridge, was born on August 15th, 1950. So his birthday is coming up. We've got on... Any thoughts on Tommy Aldridge before I move along? I like him. <laughs> He's one of those guys that's just, he seems to have drummed with everybody. Yeah, he's and, just so prolific. It's unbelievable. And uh, I'm really like, uh, I'm happy that I got to see him with Whitesnake uh, yeah. recently when I did, because I mean, he was like played with like Ozzy, played with Whitesnake. He's played with like uh, so many different um like it just kind of one of those, uh, um, what would you call him? Like not, not really a hired gun, uh, type because I'm sure he's, um, like, I does he have his, his own band? Like the Tommy Aldridge band? No, but like a or- band that he like started in and it was his band, the kind of like trapeze was Hughes's band and stuff like that. And then he just kind of became, uh, uh, just kind of, he was in just everything with people. 
that's a good question. Um, because I know him the best from Ozzy and White yeah. Snake, and to be honest, that's it. Uh, but I mean, I know he's been around long enough that I'm sure that he's been like with a ton of other bands. But yeah, I, yeah, really... I just always, I mean, yeah. we talked about one of the first albums I ever got was, uh, you know, the, the tribute album. Uh, one, yeah. of the, one of the first CDs, I should say. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just remember Tommy Aldridge and just like hearing him just go crazy on the drums. And uh, that was my first introduction to him. And then the, the White Snake stuff. And David Coverdale posted a like a selfie or something on Twitter the other day. I like, I think it was like him and his wife, like on the private plane. And you see this big puff of hair in the background behind him. And it's like clearly Tommy Aldridge sitting in like the seat behind him. Um, yeah. It's All right. A, so, All right. I'm just, uh, just looking him up. Um, first of all, happy 68th. He'll be 68. 68. Very nice. Well, um, no, so, no, he'll um, be 69. Oh, sorry. 69. Sorry. Um, let me see. He's been, uh, he's played with numerous artists such as Black Oak, Arkansas, Pat Travers, Ozzy, Gary Moore, White Snake, Ted Nugent, Thin Lizzy, Vinnie Moore, and Ingve Malmstein. Oh, really? So, yeah, I really? Yeah. Hmm. So there you go. So yeah. I'm sure that if, uh, we dig a little deeper, uh, we'll probably, <clears throat> probably see that he, you know, might've had like a, uh, like a, uh, I don't know, a band that he, that he started. I think that's what I was trying to see or that he uh, was like an original band that he started and didn't just like kind of float into like all these were other situations. Like he was the drummer for, you know, it says he played for a short time with the Southern rock band, David and the giants in 1972. Then he auditioned mm -hmm. for black Oak, Ar Arkansas. So he, he's already auditioning. He's not like necessarily forming a band. I'm sure there's some band he formed somewhere along those lines, but yeah, but it looks like, um, all those, yeah, it looks like those ones that I mentioned were like, it looks like he started off in Black Oak, Arkansas, um, which was a pretty pretty well-known uh, 70s band. So, um, I mean, he's uh, played with some like heavy hitters of the 70s and 80s for sure. Oh, oh yeah. So anyway, happy birthday. Happy birthday, to Mr. <laughs> Tommy Aldridge. And currently like, with White Snake again. I know, it's great. It's amazing that he's, he's uh, still with them. Or back with them. I mean, <laughs> White Snake's one of those bands that when you look at, you know, you, uh, on Wikipedia, you look at like sometimes they have the timeline of the band, like yeah. where the people are. White Snake's just scrolls down. <laughs> oh, had, yeah. There had to have been like 30 people in and out of White Snake over the years. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so next up, we've got, which we recently talked about, August 15th and 16th, 1972, Made in Japan live performances um, happened. Uh, which made it to the final album. So we, I think we've covered that enough in our Made in Japan episode. Go check that out if you haven't already. And then August 16th, 1980, marked Cozy Powell's last gig with Rainbow for leaving the band. Another kind of, you know, much like Tommy Aldridge, just played with everybody. I mean, he was all over the place. Yeah, another great drummer. Another great. So that kind of wraps up the history this week. And I uh, feel like we just kind of go, go into like a, a Zen meditation now leading up to our burn, our burn review, which I've been, I've been listening to while I've been working out. I've been listening to it on the drive to work. I've, I've been, I've just been waiting and still sticking with my strict uh, guideline of not listening to the album until we get there. So like, as soon as we were done with who do we think we are, I was like, you know, the, the I was already listening to the opening riff for burn. So very excited to, to, <laughs> Really, really dive into it. Me too. So much good stuff. All right. 
Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Check us out on our social media. And, oh, I don't think I talked about it, but listen, if you're getting some value from this, join the ranks of the Holy Trinity there and become a patron. Ruin the Holy <laughs> Trinity. Make it a holy uh, foursome or whatever. And, and <laughs> contribute on pa Patreon. Um, and please leave us a, a... It doesn't cost anything to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and that helps new people discover the show. If we're giving you some value, give us some value with, at the very least, a simple review. Yeah, come on, come on, come on, come on. Don't do it. Don't don't, don't be a boner. <laughs> just, just just give us a review for God's sake. Um, okay. Any anything else to add before we close it up this week, my friend? Um, I am looking forward to burn. Oh, yes. <laughs> that is what I have to add. I'm just telling everybody that I am very excited because what an album. Oh, Look, man. it's right behind you there. Just seeing it makes me happy. Yeah, I just had to warm it up. It's just ready to go. Ready to go. Yeah. All right, everybody. We will catch you next week when we dive into the album Burn. Yeah. Until next week. See you later, my friend. Good night. Thank you for listening to the Deep Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear and would like more episodes in the future, please donate on Patreon to support the show. You can also give us a rating on iTunes to help new people discover the show. You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for show updates. See deeppurplepodcast.com for more details. Thank you for listening. Yeah, but I mean, it's just like the, the way we were talking about him. It's just like, like, I mean, yeah, it's, you're right, though. I mean, it's like those early pictures of him. It's like, did he walk in looking like that? They're just like, so, <laughs> like, what do you like? And he's like, R&B. And then like, you know, and then Richie leans over and he's like, and Twinkies, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It's just like, and, uh, yeah, I really enjoy blues singers and cupcakes. You know, it's like, they're like whispering to each other. Uh.